Welcome to Desert City Church's podcast. Thanks for listening in. What you are about to hear is a sermon given live at one of our Sunday gatherings. We are a new church serving neighborhoods on the edge of North Phoenix and Scottsdale, Arizona. Our sermons are ongoing conversations around a sacred text or scripture in which we find the story of Jesus. We hope they inspire you to love God and others more. If we can serve you in any way or answer any questions about our community, please don't hesitate to ask. You can find out more info at DesertCityChurch.com. If you want to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. This last week started the Lent series, the Lent season in the historic Christian calendar. And it's a season that we don't uh, necessarily uh, follow here at Desert City, but we recognize it. And we recognize it as something that's been important for the historic church uh, for, for a long time. And so Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. Uh, Tuesday was uh, Mardi Gras, which is, I think, French for uh, Fat Tuesday. Is that right? Fat Tuesday, Ash Wednesday. Yes, got it down. Um, and uh, it's, it's a season uh, for the church in which uh, we deny ourselves to become more aware of Jesus. And if there's a kind of a, a statement that might define this season, it's that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. And it's a time where we're preparing our heart and our minds and our soul for Easter. Easter where we celebrate resurrection. So here at Desert City, as we, as we enter into this season of Lent, uh, we're going to spend the next 40 days preparing for this time of celebration, this fast before the feast. And uh, as we head towards Easter, our hope is that we would uh, more vividly and more clearly uh, know, see, and hear from Jesus. Um, great quote I heard about Lent. Uh, Lent is a season, Lent offers us a chance to hold out our cups if they are empty and to share from abundance if they are full. To hold out our cups if they are empty, to share from abundance if they are full. It's a time of humility, simplicity, a time of decreasing. You deny yourself something for a time in order to more vividly know Jesus as the source of our sustenance and being. So there's a couple things that we're going to do. Uh, we're going to spend uh, this season in the Gospel of Luke. And I, and I think that what's great about Luke is he writes with unbelievable clarity as he gives an account of the life of Jesus. So we're going to spend two months in Luke. And uh, as you came in today, you probably got a bookmark that has a reading schedule. And our hope and our challenge as a church is to spend every day in Luke for the next two months. You can follow that reading schedule. Um, it's not, not too much work. Uh, hopefully you'll be able to carve out some time in your day to spend time reading through Luke and praying and reflecting. Uh, we also are going to have some uh, video content. It's going to be online on social media that you can follow where we hear some voices from people in our community and some of our sister churches of what these verses mean to them. And, uh, and we're just going to kind of hone in on who Jesus is through the Gospel of Luke. That being said, let's turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke 1, verse 1. We'll start here. It says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, 
just as they were handed down to us by those from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. It's an inter interesting introduction to a gospel. Uh, it's a little bit different than Matthew and Mark and John. This is a, a very personal account. And we assume that the author is Luke, as tradition tells us. And as Luke writes, I think it resonates with us. As Luke writes, uh, he's, from what we know, the only author of the Gospels who's not Jewish. He's Gentile. Uh, and as he writes, he doesn't open up with a, a poetic, uh, apocalyptic uh, poem from, like, the Gospel of John. He doesn't open up with gene genealogy like Matthew or anti-imperial language like Mark. He opens up, and it sounds like he's writing a personal letter. And he writes to one Theophilus. And what we know about Luke is that Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And so as we read through the New Testament, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. But really, Acts is kind of the sequel to Luke. Both of these are addressed to Theophilus. As we think of the recipient of this letter, of this gospel, Theophilus means friend of God in the Greek. And so some people would say that this gospel is addressed, it's a generic term for, for just people who are friends of God. Others would say there was actually a man named Theophilus. And Luke says, most excellent Theophilus. And so the thought is, this is almost like the term that you would use for a, a high-ranking Roman official. And as Luke is writing this account of Jesus, he's writing to this person uh, who has become a follower of Jesus in, the, in his high society, Rome. And he's writing Theophilus, and he's saying, I'm giving you this account of this life. And we think maybe it was this gospel is preserved so well because it was placed into the hands of this very influential person. But as we look at the purpose of Luke in this gospel, it's very evident. He's giving an orderly account. He's giving an orderly account of the life of Jesus so that we may know truth. One of the things that we know about this author, Luke, that we, we pick up on from the Apostle Paul in Colossians 4.14 is that Luke is a doctor. He's highly educated. Some of the early church said that Luke was actually a lawyer. And as he writes, what we're going to find is there's this brilliant detail and organization to this story, as Luke writes. It's an orderly account of things that he has examined from the beginning. And he says, others have written about this, but I'm writing this down to give an orderly account of Jesus so that you may know the truth. This is the book that we will spend time in. The purpose is the orderly account to know the truth. A couple just uh, distinct things about the Gospel of Luke that, uh, that we find is, is, as I said, it was the Gospel to the Gentiles. And maybe that's why it resonates with us as we, as we read it. Um, sometimes it, uh, we, we, we read Luke and we realize that he has a very Western mind. It's almost like he's an American before America. So maybe it resonates with us. But this is a Gospel that's written for the Gentiles we also know that this is the gospel of prayer. As we read through Luke, and you'll find this in, in your readings, is that Luke, any, anything that happens, significant moments in Jesus' life, he either starts with prayer or he ends with prayer. 
Throughout the Gospel of Luke, the life of Jesus, we find Jesus spending time in solitude praying. This Lenten season, as we read through Luke and we focus on prayer, this is a good gospel to guide us. The other thing that's been said about Luke is that it's the gospel for women. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, we find women who are heroes in this story. Women who are drawn attention to their work and their interaction in the life of Jesus. And there's light shed on how significant they were. And in a time period when there wasn't great value placed on women, this would have been uh, good news. Another thing about the Gospel of Luke is that it's also the Gospel of prayer or praise. Uh, throughout the Gospel of Luke, there's, these, there's actually three old church hymns that are found in it. And as you read it, I won't tell you what those hymns are, but when you come across it, uh, let me know if you find them. Don't Google it, that's cheating. But, um, and so it's this Gospel of, to the Gentiles, a Gospel of prayer. Uh, there's unsung heroes, uh, and it's a Gospel of, of praise. I love this thought that it was written for the church, and it, there's a pastoral purpose. One of my favorite Bible commentators says this about the Gospel of Luke. It's written, the purpose is shaping a community for restoration. Luke's compilation of sayings and parables focused on the heart of God for the lost clearly indicates his desire to nurture the same heart among communities of disciples. The church that takes Luke's word to heart will be a community of mercy and love actively seeking the restoration of fallen people, reflecting the character of God who called the community together. And that's our hope in this Lent season as well. That this would shape us to be a community of restoration, of love, and of mercy. As you kind of look at the narrative structure of Luke, uh, what you'll find is that kind of the first third of Luke deals with the identity of Jesus. They're trying to figure out who this guy is. They're trying to figure out what he's up to in this world. And then in chapter 9, something very important happens. The whole story kind of pivots on chapter 9 that we're going to dive into today. Something very significant happens that Jesus, a question that Jesus asks and a statement that Jesus makes. And after chapter 9, we find the next uh, 15 chapters deal with the mission of Jesus, what he's, uh, his purpose of being here. So I want to pick up today in Luke chapter 9, verse 18. It says, uh, starting in verse 18, the story goes, once when Jesus was praying in private, as he does so often through Luke, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Now, that's an interesting response to this question. Because they, what they claim is that he's a hero of old. They're actually giving him great credit. When they think of the, the heroes of their faith, they're saying, people are identifying you, Jesus, with these people. The disciples are saying there's something significant happening here. But then Jesus turns the question to them and he says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Question of Jesus to his disciples. A question that we can't ignore either. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. 
the Christ. Verse 21, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. And then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes into his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Interesting passage where the story starts to pivot in the Gospel of Luke. And there's two statements that are here. One, the question where Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And then the statement, whoever wants to be my disciples, dot, dot, dot. The question, who do you say that I am, is a question that we must wrestle with, a question that we must address. And what we find in the disciples is that they discover the answer to this question. And Jesus deems that they've answered correctly. But then they discover what the answer of this question means for their life. They discover the answer of this question, but then they have to discover what the answer means. And Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must dot, dot, dot. What Jesus is dealing here with is both identity and mission. Identity and mission. The same question is posed to us, for us to discover who Jesus is and what that means for us. Um, When I think back to my life, some of you know my story. I'm a pastor's kid. I'm a PK. Um, One of those rebellious PKs, right? No, lived a very sheltered life. I think for me, the first time I really wrestled to understand what this question meant was uh, because my mom brought it to my attention. Living up in Seattle, I was probably five years old, and I remember my mom talking about this question of who Jesus is in this world. And It's funny because now I have a a son who's six years old and having these conversations with him, uh, trying to watch him figure out what all this means. Um, For me, it was this. I I had this understanding that uh, there's this bigger story in this world that we're all a part of. There's this God who is created And even at five years old, I've realized that the world probably isn't as it's supposed to be. Uh, My feelings hurt all the time. There's something that's off. There's something that's broken. And my mom explained that brokenness is the world has missed the mark of what God designed. And there's consequences because of that. So we started talking about what those consequences led to, separation from God. I remember as a five-year-old learning about hell for the first time. For me, it was terrifying to think of hell. And I was imagining devil dressed up in a red suit with horns uh, and uh, a pitchfork. It had these pictures that all I knew is that I didn't want anything to do with that. So to respond to this question of what is, who is Jesus? What does he mean to me? Literally, I think it, it scared the hell out of me, right? <laughs> Good job, Mom. And, uh, but it developed this language, this understanding 
of who this Jesus was and what he was up to in this world. And as I got to junior high, the implications of that question started to take on more meaning. I went off to a youth camp, something that our teenagers went to a few weeks ago, and continued to wrestle with this question of who is Jesus. At that moment, I started to realize that this thing uh, called hell, what it's talking about is a separation from God, this separation from our maker. There's this consequence that comes from the brokenness of the world that we live in. And as Jesus enters into this world, it's the statement that God declares that although the world is broken and although there are these consequences that are eternal for this brokenness, I love the world so much to say that that's the end of the story. So for me, this question of who Jesus was, all of a sudden, I started to understand that there was this reconciliation process that was taking place. There was this story of things getting put back together in the life of Jesus. So Jesus, for me, wasn't just this escape from the torment of eternal hell. It was all of a sudden this lordship of my life. This process of reconciliation was taking place for me. <coughs> Jesus uh, was the son of God. He was the demonstration of God's love for the world. I remember wrestling with uh, a statement from C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, when considering this question. Some of you know C.S. Lewis. He was a, a great author. Um, early on in his life, he was an atheist. And he's one of the kind of few people that gets argued into giving his life to Jesus. Um, he had this kind of realization. When we come to this question of who is Jesus, Jesus makes some declarations about himself as being the son of God. C.S. Lewis kind of basically said, when he was considering these declarations by Jesus, he goes through this whole, he was either a lunatic, a liar, or he was true. Maybe you've heard that old adage, that Jesus is either a lunatic, a liar, or he's true. And he said that, he didn't think that Jesus was a lunatic. Lunatics tend to be uh, brilliant yet narcissistic. Lunatics, uh, who create a following like Jesus, would use it for his own gain. He says, I don't see that in the life of Jesus. I don't think he's a lunatic. That's not consistent with what we see in his life. C.S. Lewis said, I don't think he's a liar either. Because usually when people are lying, what they're trying to do is protect themselves. And what we don't find in Jesus is protection. What we find is him sacrificing his life, giving his life away. If anything, this message of who he was led to his destruction. So C.S. Lewis said it had to be that he was telling the truth. He's the Messiah. There's this lordship. When we wrestle with this question of who is Jesus, uh, we have to answer. We fall into these categories where Jesus doesn't make it easy for us to say, uh, I'll come back to that some other time. The question Jesus has for his disciples is a question for us. Who is Jesus? And here's what I've found when it comes to following Jesus, when it comes to being his disciple, is that Christianity, it's not just about knowing the creed or a doctrine or a religious statement. It's not just about getting fire insurance. Christianity about, is about knowing a person. As we consider this question Jesus has in our own lives, who is Jesus? We come to a revelation through relationship with him. For me in junior high, it was understanding that God loves us so much that he wants to be in community with us. 
He wants to be in relationship with us. The separation that we create, the things that we do, the things that have been done to us, God says, I love you so much. I'm pursuing you enough to send Jesus into this world. Christianity, our identity, is about a relationship of knowing a person, Jesus. Early church, Colossians 1.19, they had a statement that says, For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his bloodshed on the cross. The fullness of God, God dwells in Jesus. We want to know what God is like. We look to his son. Here in Luke, with great clarity, we see the character of God. Christianity is essentially knowing Jesus. Last night, my wife and I are having a conversation. We're talking about how we're going to get ready to go to this pastor's retreat in April. And as we prepared for this retreat, uh, one of the things that the person facilitating the retreat asked us a bunch of questions on, what do you, what do you, why are you coming to this retreat? What do you need? And one of the things that Marcy said that's something that's been so important for us <laughs> is we need to just spend time abiding this weekend, abiding in Christ the source of our life. This relationship with God, we get so busy doing, we get so busy uh, that we forget that it's about knowing a person. It's about a relationship. Everything else stems from that. We abide in Christ. Again, the early church, uh, they got this right. There's a story in Acts where The religious leaders are kind of uh, wrestling with who these disciples of Jesus are. And in Acts 14, they're talking to Peter and John, and it says in verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. But they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. When we consider this question of who Jesus is, we come to... A revelation through relationship. We discover Jesus by knowing him. We discover God by knowing him. The second statement Jesus makes, if anyone wants to be my disciples, it's not a question. If anyone wants to be my disciples, Jesus is explaining this is what it looks like. You discover who Jesus is, and then you discover what that means. What I found is that Jesus makes it very easy to come into relationship with him. This is a message for all people, this message of love. But to be a disciple, to follow him, is a challenge. We're faced with the urgency of a broken world. We're faced with the urgency of eternity. And Jesus calls us to a certain kind of life as his disciple. And what we find is that The life that he calls us to is where we find true life, life abundant. Jesus says, if anyone wants to be my disciples, and he lays out what that looks like. He says that you have to deny yourself, to take up your cross, to spend your life giving and not hoarding. To be a disciple of Jesus is to lay down your life for others. What we find is that Following Jesus, being a Christian, is not just about 
avoiding sin, but it's about consciously doing the will of God in this world. There's a calling that we have that God has placed on our life. We're actively joining him in his work. This is what the church is, the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus. So we discover who Jesus is, but we discover what that means. It means that we're a part of this big story where we're joining God in this work towards restoration. Again, for my story, as I grew older, growing up in the church, coming to understanding of who Jesus is, uh, it started to shape my life, my calling. And uh, some of that calling took place, some of you know the story, when I was a junior in high school. And what's interesting is that it happened the first week of March, my junior year of high school. And what kind of brought it back to my attention is uh, uh, I was on a missions trip with a, a local school that I was attending. There's a family, the Bowers, their kids just went on such a mission trip last week. And uh, went on this mission trip to Juarez, Mexico. It's one of the most dangerous cities in North America. I don't think we knew it at the time. It's like the cartel capital. Let's send a bunch of Scottsdale kids there on a missions trip. And it was this, for me, pivotal time in my life because I was a basketball player. I know, I know, you could tell. Um, <laughs> but up until that point in my life as an athlete, my greatest accomplishment happened the last week of February, right before that trip. My high school team won the state championship. And uh, it's one of these like, stories you tell now and everyone's like, oh, it's like Uncle Rico <laughs> talking about the good old days. Uh, but it was so significant for me because uh, the school that I played for won the, the championship the year before, and we graduated everybody. And so no one expected us to win again. Uh, everyone counted us out. And I remember working that season harder than anything I'd ever worked for in my entire life. Um, just going through the grueling practices, uh, putting your body through that. I remember I, I'd never worked for anything so hard in my entire life. And then we were underdogs going to the state tournament, and we ended up winning the state tournament. No one expected it. And any time you, you win a championship, whether it's our church softball team, which happens often, or, uh, <laughs> there's an unbelievable sense of accomplishment to be a champion, uh, to win. And I remember feeling that, working so hard, and no one expecting it to happen, thinking this is the greatest experience of my life. This is amazing. I'll never forget this experience. That happened on a Saturday, and that Monday, we all got on a bus and drove down to El Paso, across the border into Mexico, to a place called Juarez. We spent all week serving uh, people who... Uh, that we don't see here in Scottsdale. Spent time in a prison, spent time in some of the slums of Juarez, working amongst the poor, the oppressed. And I remember that week, uh, the contrast the week before, where we're playing at the Sun Stadium, we have all the glory, we were in the newspaper. The very next week, uh, feeding people who were starving. 
spending time with criminals who've ruined their life with their decisions. Doing that for a week, coming out of that thinking, whatever just happened this week, this emotion that I have, the fulfillment of being a part of things that are eternal, completely blows away the feeling of winning a state championship. Some of you might say that's because you went to a small private school and it wasn't that big of a deal. <laughs> but I was able to compare those emotions, to be a part of the work of God's kingdom as a disciple, to see people's lives influence for eternity, to give myself to something bigger than myself. Uh, there was no comparison. And I would say that the emotions that I felt of joy that were all good with the basketball season, those were all real emotions and they're great. But the emotion of joy that I felt working alongside before doing God's work was a fruit of the Spirit. And I felt that God was calling me in that moment to say, there's things that you can give your life to. But when you give your life to the things that Jesus gives his life to, true life is found. As we consider what Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you must take up your cross and follow me. What we find is that we start to give our life to things that are eternal. For me, that played out in the context of vocational ministry. But that's not what all people are called to. But I believe that all of you are called to this eternal work. However that plays out, whatever your occupation is, whatever your family is, whatever your community is, we have to consider our identity and mission as followers of Jesus. We discover who Jesus is, and then we discover what that means for our life. All of you are called to join this story where you're giving your life to eternal things. So today as we close, we close this sermon, but we start this season of Lent. We must consider, who is Jesus? Who is he in your life? And what does that mean? Maybe you've never considered that question before. This is all brand new to you. Maybe you walked in this church, you're like, what have I gotten myself into? Maybe you have considered who he is, but you haven't considered what that means for your life. Today, the invitation is to trust him, to surrender your will, to decrease so that Jesus may increase. Tim's going to come back up and the band's going to close us. We're going to head to communion. But we head to communion considering that question, who is Jesus? We consider what it means for our life. Communion for us is a sacred act. It's a reminder of the story. Communion represents God's love. At the table, we take two elements that are symbolic of what God has done in this world through Jesus. We take a piece of bread, and it represents the body of Christ. 
that God became man, that he loved us so much that he sent Jesus, and the fullness of who God is dwells in him. What we find in this gospel is that God and Jesus breaks his body open. Then we take this juice that represents the blood of Jesus. We believe that Jesus broke his body open and he poured his blood out to bring about healing and restoration to this world. And we take it remembering who he is and what he's done. But then we also take it because the church is the body of Christ. And we're called to be this living Eucharist in this world. We break ourselves open. We pour ourselves out to bring life to other people. But today as we take that, we are reminded of this call to discipleship. And I ask that you would count that cost today as you consider who Jesus is and what it means for you. Let's go to the table. Let's open our lives so that God may move through us. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, for the story that reveals your heart. It's the heart of a father. It's the heart of a God who is love. Lord, we thank you that in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of all the ways that we mess things up, in the midst of all the things that have been done to us, you offer us healing. You offer us life that is eternal. You rescue us from the grave. Lord, today we consider this question that you asked your disciples. Lord, I ask that you would allow us to discover that today. And in this season, it would become more clear than ever who you are. And we'd also consider what it means to be your follower. In this season of Lent, Lord, that calling on our lives would become more and more clear each day. That we would join you in this great plan of salvation as your church. We give you this time. Amen.